Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Johnny, 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 whoops, Johnny, whoops, Johnny. (laughs) Nice to see you. It is great to be seen two weeks later. And it really is two weeks later. We're being honest here. On a rare occasion, we'll do two of these back-to-back, but this has been a couple weeks later. So uh, still getting great feedback from Nicholas Meyer a while back. People uh, were impressed, as uh, we were with Tyler Erickson. And now we're on to uh, episode 218, season 2, episode 18. What does Switzerland think? Well, he is not shy about letting us know. But he's not the only one out there who lets us know what's going on. I appreciate Uh, you insulating me from all of that. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's okay. I had a kind of a frantic YouTube post after Nicholas Meyer. I forgot to tell you about where someone said that that Italian phrase that he said. What is that? I need that. Yeah. And I don't. I don't remember the phrase. I looked it up for the person, but it's the. It translates as a, if it isn't true, it should be. And that's just how erudite he is, and how unerudite I am that I couldn't. I was able to track it down for them. That no, was. Fun. I think that's all that counts. It, it really is. Einstein said, "Don't don't memorize anything you can look up." Did he really say that? He really did say that. Yeah, that's that's honest to God truth. And see how I, I just dovetailed back into Einstein out of the Nicholas Meyer interviews. Boy, I would just like to go back in time and, and mention that to Sister Rosarita. <laughs> well, they and uh, yeah, there's some things that they wanted us to memorize. But Einstein was a big fan of don't clutter your mind with all kinds of stuff that's in a book somewhere. Keep your mind roaming free over stuff that uh, you got to think about that you can't memorize. Exactly. Well, you know, I think he's going to go places. Albert? That Einstein, yeah, I, I have high hopes. I, th- I think he'll be out of the patent office before he knows it. Didn't you name your studio after him, Albert Bridge Books? Albert's Bridge is, it means a couple things. One, it's a it's a radio play by Tom Stoppard about a guy whose job it is to paint a bridge, and when he's done painting the bridge, it now is time for him to paint it again. So oh, he has to go back to the beginning paint it again. And it's also named for one of my favorite dogs we ever had, our friend Albert, otherwise known as Schmert. Schmertbridge books. It could have yeah, been. We don't. It, that didn't sound right. We didn't go Schmertbridge books. We went Albert's Bridge books. This episode is the same but uh, different. Our friend Suzanne, the magician, as John mentioned, is uh, going to be interviewed for the second time, and she's now going to tell us how she made the transition from performing magic, which she does very, very well, yes. to performing magic and teaching magic. Yeah, it was a. Fun chat, chatting with someone we've known for so long, you've known her longer than I have, and to learn new stuff about her was kind of amazing. Yeah, uh, she's, uh, as I, I'm a huge fan. Uh, just I'll just say that right out front. She's uh, won the Close-Up Magician of the Year from the Academy of Magical Arts at the Magic Castle in L.A. She fooled Penn and Teller. She is um, a very wonderful magician and i'm lucky to call her friend but there are things of her uh, about her story that i i just didn't know after yeah. all these years i've probably known her 30 years yeah more, maybe more than that and then there's, there's things i didn't know that's amazing so to begin that chat uh we first asked suzanne to go back to the beginning what is your origin story how did you get into magic wow um I am such an outlier. I was taught a silly little trick when I was about 11. And the way it was presented to me, it was more like a puzzle than anything. And I was way into puzzles 
and like kind of gotcha, like bar tricks and stuff like that. And I grew up in Michigan and I didn't really have any type of um, magic influence in the small town in Michigan, Battle Creek, Michigan, where I grew up. And so I didn't think of in terms of being a magician, but I became a computer programmer, which is all about puzzles, right? So I did that. That's what I went to college for. And that's what I did for my job. And then I moved to Minneapolis. And when I was in Minneapolis, I hardly knew anybody except for the people that I worked with and the guy that I was dating at the time. And he was in a band all the time. So he was gone. And I got on a Commodore 64. Do you remember those computers, the Commodore 64s? Oh, yeah. And they had this, the Commodore 64 had this platform that you could get on it to gaming, a game gaming platform makes me think of like Fortnite or something like that. It wasn't like that as you could get, you could dial up and you would play games like backgammon and checkers and chess and stuff like that with people. So picture this, here's this, this young computer programmer chick in Minneapolis waiting in line to play backgammon with somebody. And then there's this guy in Boston waiting to play backgammon with somebody we meet up we play backgammon so it's like fate or something I don't believe in fate but let's say fate he's asking me oh by the way I'm kicking his butt in backgammon (laughs) sidebar had to get that in so he asked me type chatting what do you do for a living and I said I'm a computer programmer and I said what do you do for a living and he said I'm a professional magician and he went Well, isn't that kind of cool? I used to do some little card tricks when I was a kid. And he said, well, I happen to be the president of the magic club here in Boston. I can give you the name. This is the SAM magic club. I'll give you the name of the president of the SAM in Minneapolis. And you could go to a meeting. And I went, oh, that sounds kind of cool. That'd be a way for me to like socialize with people. So he gives me Jerry Martin's name because Jerry Martin happened to be the president of the magic club at the time. And the, the meeting was at his house in his basement. And, you know, at the beginning of the magic club meetings, there's always the the business part of the meeting. And then there's the time where everybody is like sitting around doing magic for each other. Well, during the business part, I'm hearing whispers. The master is coming tonight. What? The master never comes to these meetings. Well, I don't know. He called and said he was coming tonight. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the master, somebody is some wizard is going to come and it's going to be like this amazing, like flash of smoke. And there's going to be this guy there. Well, it turns out it was Al Schneider who never comes to these meetings, but he ended up coming. So all of these people are sitting around after the, um, the business portion and I'm watching them do magic and I'm going, Oh, well, that's, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. But nothing really triggered me to go, Whoa, what the heck was that? Everything was like, I'm not saying I knew how they did it, but it looked like puzzles to me. And that if I worked with it long enough, I'd be able to figure it out. Well, then Al was sitting on the floor and I went over and sat down on the floor next to him and he picked up a coin. He put it in his hand, showed the one hand empty, squeezed his hand, showed his other hand empty and showed the backs of his hands. And my brain went click. And my eyeballs went from being like horizontal to the ground to being 
like perpendicular. And I, I swear, I must have looked like a dog that somebody did a trick for with my head sideways because everything was sideways. And I said, Oh, my goodness, would you teach me? And he said, that's why I came tonight. Wow. Talk about fate. And then I trained with him for three months. He would not let me move on from one trick to the next trick until I had it perfect. I had to have it perfect before he would move on to the next thing. Then after three months, I said, well, I've done all these four magic tricks for all the people that I know, and they're getting sick of them. What do I do now? And he said, I don't know, go get a restaurant. And then I st- I went, uh, oh, okay, I don't know how to do this. So I just went, okay, well, what restaurants could I do this with? And I called a bunch of ground rounds because ground rounds had clowns. So they probably want a magician. And I interviewed with 10 of them. And when I got two gigs, I got a gig at one for Friday night and a gig at another for Saturday night. I went, well, that's all I'm going to be able to do anyway, because I'm a computer programmer during the day. And Friday night and Saturday night is when my then boyfriend, now husband was gigging in his band. So I got four hours of practice at each restaurant. So eight hours of practice a week. And then I met Eugene three months after that and got another gig. So, Uh, you know, as long as we've known each other and it's quite a while, I've never heard that story. I knew you never told you that. Oh, no, I I knew you worked with Al Schneider, but I had never heard this origin story. So uh, consider me uh, blown away. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) So what was his style like when it came to teaching you? Al? Oh, he was brutal. (laughs) In a good way, brutal. Yeah, he was he was brutal, and um, and uh, I don't know how I did it because he would yell at me, and I don't know how I must have just wanted it bad enough because I would he would teach me to do uh, to vanish a coin. You'd have to go a coin and really throw it in your hand, drop one hand to the table, turn the other hand over and feel the coin inside your hand. And he'd go, "Uh uh-huh, again. And then you'd have to do it again. And he'd go, "Uh uh-huh, again. And then you do it again. And he'd go, change change that one part, change that one part. And all I was going for was the him screaming, yes. Otherwise, you're getting no, 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 no. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. And who excels that way? Apparently you. Apparently. Uh, yeah, because you are a phenomenal uh, magician. Oh, thank uh, you. A fooler of Penn and Teller and a delight to watch on stage. So uh, you could say what you want about that technique of training, but it must have worked because you're terrific. Well, thank you. It, it seemed to work with me at the time. And I don't know if I would be able to put up with it now in the, yeah. but he, yeah, he was brutal. And I was just, I was just craving that. Yes. So if he gave me a no, I it just, it pushed me harder. And I think he would have gotten angry with me if I hadn't have practiced. So like I have a, I have quite a few students who don't practice and they get together with me uh, because they just want to talk magic. And that's okay. If you want to pay me 50 to a hundred dollars an hour, because depending upon where you are and what your finances are, that's what I charge 50 to a hundred dollars an hour. If you want to get together with me and just chat magic, that's, 
fine. But if you really want to get something done, like I have one student in New Jersey who just sent me an email that said, I auditioned for the Magic Castle and I got it. And it's because you helped me. So he, I get together with him every other week and he works his butt off. I can tell he videos himself and he works his butt off. But some of my other students are like, yeah, they just want to get together and talk magic. That's fine. So after working with Al for three months and now you're doing ground round gigs, at what point did you make the leap from I'm no longer a computer programmer and I'm going to do this full time? I met um, Eugene Berger and from the ground round, I was only getting little kids birthday parties and you couldn't get enough money for little kids birthday parties to, to really make anything. And so Eugene was talking about switching from little kids birthday parties over to corporate and he said the way to do that is to get an upscale restaurant that's like just adults go to. And I think in the last podcast that I was in, I talked about Eugene giving me the name of Toby, who was the head chef manager at the American Cafe. Uh, so that was three months after I was doing the ground round. So that's six months after I started learning from Al, then Eugene gave me that name. I auditioned for Toby. I got the gig at the American Cafe and I did that for about six months. So that's another six months. But I had to get the American Cafe before I could quit because then I was doing a lot of corporate. And then I started traveling with corporate and then I couldn't do, kind of couldn't do my programming job and travel. So it was about a year. Well, that's, you know, I, I think that's remarkable to go from a, a complete career shift in a year uh, in a creative field. Uh, if you were moving from computer programming, let's say to real estate sales, uh, but you're not. I mean, you're talking about learning a skill set uh, like magic, which I think is very demanding. And to go from zero to corporate travel as a magician in a year is, uh, I think, any magician that we've ever talked to would say, that's remarkable. And, and sometimes I it throws my head back a little bit because I, I have to work with the little parts of me who don't think I'm worthy because I mean, everybody has those little parts of them who go, oh, well, I'm not worthy. You then just look at your pen and Teller Foolish trophy for a second and go, oh, no, wait, it's OK. I, I oh, oh, are you kidding? Are you kidding, Jim? Because I look at that and then I read the I read the comments that come up on my YouTube channel that I review all of the comments and don't allow crappy comments on my YouTube channel. But the ones oh, she only got that because she's a girl or, oh, she only got that because in the beginning of the thing, she had cancer and it was, a, I get that all the time. And so that plays on my, I'm not worthy. And the reason that I think that I'm not worthy is because it wasn't hard for me. Yeah. And I think that people believe, I don't know where we got the belief that we have to suffer for our art. And I did not suffer. I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, ask the right people, the right questions, doors were open. And I came into this life with a certain drive 
And so because of all of that together, it was like throwing everything into a pot and making the perfect soup, but you didn't have to try for it. And so a lot of what I got, at least what it seems like I got, is that I didn't do any work, but I, it doesn't feel like I did the work because it was fun. But you definitely did the work. Oh, I did the work. And I have to keep reminding myself that I did the work. I would practice when Al was teaching me. I think he would have got mad if I didn't practice. And I would come home from my programming job and I would practice for three hours a day. Yeah. If, if you weren't getting yeses from him, if you were only getting no's, that's how you know you, you must have been practicing because he gave you yeses. Right. Well, not very often. Well, en- enough to keep you going. And I heard yeah. something recently. I don't remember where it was. That someone said, the only people who don't have imposter syndrome are actual imposters. Oh, so, I love that. <laughs> that it's, it just comes with the territory. So don't, don't worry about that. In, in your description of, of, of being taught by Al, that's work right there. I mean, you're doing the work. You, I don't think you could be taught by somebody as renowned and as exacting as Al Schneider Uh, If you didn't do, I mean, I think he would have tired of you rather quickly if he didn't sense that you really wanted to do the work and were doing the work. Right. Yeah. He said, thanks for everything, but I'm not interested anymore. He might have still wanted the money, but. Ah, Who needs money? It's just dirty paper. (laughs) So Let's talk about the transition then from full-time professional magician to occasional magic teacher. Didn't Eugene Berger push you a little bit toward teaching? Yeah. Well, yes. I had gone to Chicago to work Magic Chicago. It was before the Chicago Magic Lounge. So as Magic Chicago was monthly. Oh, in fact, what we're kind of basing Sunday Night Magic around. So they would do a monthly performance where they would bring in outside magicians, have them lecture in town, and then some of the local magicians would perform. So it's kind of the same thing that we're doing. And Eugene liked to be on the bill with me, which I thought was lovely. And I was very honored that he wanted to be on the bill with me. So we did this one performance together. And then I was staying in his building in that in one of the, the rooms that they would rent out to the outside people. And I went up to his apartment with him and he started talking about, and I think about this, I think he knew that he didn't have much more time left. And he said, if I could do it right, Suzanne, I believe that it is time that you become the sage. Mm. And I said, "Uh, what you talking about? And he said, well, I am not going to be around forever. And I believe it is time that you start being the sage. I want you to be like the next or whatever. And I went, uh, no, I'm, I'm still in trickster, dude. Because, because Eugene taught, you. Ha- there's four phases to, to your magic development. There's trickster, there's sorcerer, there's Oracle and there's Sage. And I thought I was still in Trickster. And he said, you're already there, Suzanne. You're already there. (laughs) To Sage that I just had not embraced it yet. So he said that and I turned him down. And I said, I don't want that. I don't want that um, position. And he just went, well, fine. (laughs) 
or <laughs> you know, he wasn't going to like make me, but he did say, you need to start taking on students. So I took it a little bit more seriously when he said it, instead of just going, you know, I'll take them when I can get them. I'll, I'll, I'll take students. So anybody out there who wants to be a student of mine, yeah, just contact me and I'll do it. But I'm not going to chase people to teach them. Jim, I interrupted you. You, have, you had a question. Yeah, I want to just talk about typical students. If there, if, if there is such a thing as a, a typical uh, student that you teach, or you, you mentioned the gamut there from people who want to just pay you to chat magic, and then people who really work at it and end up at the magic castle. Is there something you could describe as a, a typical magic student of yours? The typical magic student wants to learn a specific thing. Like they like my blank card trick to card to pocket transition. They like that. Some people only want to learn cups and balls from me. Some people want to learn a specific move. Like for instance, they like my top change. They want to learn that. Some people just want to know how do I not get hecklers. And so we'll talk about me. And that might only be one lesson that they sit and pick my brain about or one or two lessons about how come I don't get hecklers. So it really depends upon like the skill level of the person. The one guy who just got his audition for the Magic Castle and was accepted as a, a magician member, he has been doing magic since he was like eight. <laughs> and he started out just doing kids shows and bank uh like blue and gold banquets and schools and stuff like that but he wanted to start doing more corporate and he wanted to learn that and that's what he wanted to have for his audition so it really runs the gamut yeah i mean it, it really depends upon where the person is how long they've been doing magic G given this gamut what do you think is the biggest mistake or the biggest misconception that a beginning magician might have as they're getting into magic that they have to learn 500 tricks you need one trick, do it well. That's the only thing you focus on is that one trick. That's it. When you get that, then you get another trick. And that's all you focus on. That's it. That's kind of an Al Schneider way of teaching, right? I mean, yep. that, that's what he taught you is that we're not moving on. And Eugene was a big proponent of that too. Yep. Both. And so was Di Vernon a big proponent of that. When I, when I went out and worked at the Magic Castle the first time in 88, I asked him, what is your, what, if you could only give one piece of advice, what would that advice be? And he said, only learn one trick at a time and don't move on until you have it. And I 100% agree with that counsel. It, uh, so let me just make this more kind of global, I guess. What are magicians doing wrong? Oh, goodness. Where do I start? <laughs> okay. Other than trying to learn absolutely every single trick on, in the book and buying all sorts of props and gimmicks and tossing them in their drawer because they'll buy it and they'll go, ah, that's crap. And then they toss it in their drawer and then they don't understand why they bought it in the first place. So they think that the more stuff I have, the more knowledge I have, the more books I have, the more uh, YouTube videos that I watch, the more, the more, the more, the more, the more. That's magic hoarding. That's all that is. And if you're hoarding magic, you're not 
really learning anything. You're just stuffing your brain full of all sorts of superfluous stuff. And I'm not going to say they're doing it wrong. I, I'm going to say they're doing it inefficiently. But you know, it's interesting because that, uh, that idea of I must amass all these different things before I really become the thing I want to be is true. I have found in people who are writing novels yep. is I'm going to take a million classes before I put a word on paper. It was true back when I was writing screenplays. I ran into people all the time who said, I'm not ready to write my screenplay. I have to read another book. I have to take right. another class. I have to spend another $500 on something or other before I can start it. And the, the, the truth is you don't really need any of that. I remember we talked to Morgan and Wes last year and Morgan and Wes are very successful professional magicians who learned exactly what they needed to learn and kind of make a point of not really learning anymore. Right, they right. said, I don't, I don't know any new card tricks. I would never learn another. I don't need another card trick. Right. The card tricks I have are the ones I use. I don't need any more. Right. When I when I teach at uh, conventions, the most common question that I always get at a convent a convention or a or a lecture is, "What are you working on now?" <laughs> Work on. I'm trading my horse. We're remodeling our bathroom. What yeah. do you mean? What am I working on now? You mean another trick? I don't need another trick. You learn one trick and you, you, you learn it so that your body knows it. Because once your body knows it, the physicality of it, the timing of it, the breath of it, the, what you expect to get from your audience from it, that leaves you, your mental side is now open to play and to riff off whatever they say. So it makes it look like ad living. So it's kind of like when you're learning to drive, when you first are learning to drive, you need to be able to steer, keep the correct speed. If you're doing a with a stick shift car, know how to shift and uh, not run off the road and not hit anything. And when you're learning, that's terrifying. But now that I've been driving for feels like longer than I've been alive, I don't even think about it. And I can be talking on the phone and see something that I have to avoid in the road and not hit anything because my body already knows what to do. So you've got to get it so that your body knows what to do to give your brain the room to play. And, it, and you know, I, I want to just circle back because because I'm a guy who likes to collect secrets and collect magic and I seldom perform magic. The stuff that I perform, I learned so that I could perform it. And we quote this all the time about Eugene saying, and he was the first person to say it to me, is that, you know, if not everybody needs to be a performer. You can love magic and collect it and read about it and go see it and never feel like you have to perform it. Right. That's that's a viable room in the house of magic collector, right? Aficionado or fan, uh, all of that is acceptable. It's I think the idea of wanting to be on stage as a performer is where the distinction lies. I need to. There are certain steps that need to be taken before I want to inflict magic on an audience. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put that, Jim. Well, that, that is why I wanted to shift the word when you said, what are they doing wrong? 
I don't want it to be about right or wrong or good or bad, that black and white part. Some people do really like to collect magic. They like to, they go, oh man, that looks really cool. I, w- I wonder how it works. I'll pay money to find out how that works. And they buy the prop and then they go, oh, that's how that works. That's cool. That was worth the $20 that I spent, whatever. And I'll put it in a drawer and never touch it again. That's a perfectly valid thing to do. And at the same time, if you want to be a performer, that's inefficient to learn your magic that way, I think, because you're just collecting and collecting and collecting. You're not focused on working on it. Now, I could be very wrong. What if you collect and collect and collect and then find a thing that goes like, oh man, I could really put that in something. So it's a way, it is a way to do it. Across the hall into another room of magic at that point. Right, exactly, exactly. You're allowed to move from room to room. Right. Now, I don't think any way to learn magic is wrong, but I will say it is not loving to perform magic and treat your audience participants like the butt of the joke or a prop or something like that. I'm not even going to say that that's wrong, but if you want to be a better performer and uh, a performer that people want to be around, you, you are either loving or not loving. You're either compassionate or not compassionate. Neither one of them is wrong. It's just what result do you want? All right. One last question for you. What has got you excited about magic today? Can it be more than one thing? Sure can. Sure. Globally, whatever you want. It can be whatever you want. What 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 gets you charged up right now? Are there performers out there you like? Is there a, you know, what what is it? I am really excited about the fact that more magicians are seeing the value of compassion seeing the value of putting compassion in their shows, because I just kind of naturally was there. I'm going to theorize that women tend to be more yin and men tend to be more yang. Uh, The yin is holding a container for something to happen and yang is doing the thing. So yang is more aggressive and pushy and yin is more holding a space. So I was more natural yin anyway. So a compassion in my magic was natural to me. So seeing your audience as people who will have an experience of how you treat them is more yin and yang is more doing magic at people. So I am excited that more more male magicians are seeing how the yin side of magic works really well. And Eugene was like that. Eugene was very compassionate and playful and sweet and kind with his magic. I don't think I ever saw Eugene being me. Contrasting with other magicians that I was watching at the time, they would do magic at people. The audience participant would be uncomfortable. The audience would also be uncomfortable, but they would laugh because that's the release of the discomfort. So the magicians thought And the people writing the magic books thought that that laugh was a genuine laugh, not 
uh, release of discomfort laugh. It wasn't really funny to say, let me see your hand. No, the clean one. I guess that was the clean one. That's not really funny, but the audience would laugh because bullying behavior gets the audience to laugh. So I'm geeked about that. The other thing that I'm really geeked about is that when I'm teaching magic classes, it used to be one girl, one woman in the class. Now it's getting closer to 50-50. So when I'm, when I'm doing lectures, it's closer to 50-50. So there's more women, girls, young girls coming up doing magic. And it's a possibility now for them. And I saw no women in magic when I started. None. You know, there are, they tell me, a significant more number of women in magic these days, I believe. Uh, and it, it is less of an issue than it was, but it's still uh, an issue. It's still, uh, in fact, Suzanne and I, since we recorded this, have already chatted about, I don't understand why they say, we don't need to book you. We've already booked a ma uh, female magician for this act. It's like, well, she's not a female magician. She's a magician. It's not a quota. It's full stop right yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great. It's pretty crazy. I think the, uh, you know, the things that that, uh, that rocked me back a little bit on my heels uh, as a performer was her going from zero to full-time corporate magician in a 12-month stretch of time. Unheard of. That's, Unheard um, of. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So I, I uh, enjoyed that. But the thing that I liked the most was when we asked, what you know, what's exciting? The, the idea that compassion should be part of what we do as performers, I think is a very smart, unique take on, on what you can do to be a better performer, not just magician, but performer. Yeah, and once she said that, if you kind of sorted through your mind, you could go, oh, I, I can immediately recognize performers who have that sort of compassion, who already are doing that. I would immediately, uh, Derek Hughes would jump to mind. Yeah. Uh, even though he's doing comedy magic, uh, he's a, a, a very warm and compassionate performer. Uh, Teller is very much a compassionate performer. Yeah, I, one of my favorite performers probably uh, is Arsene. Uh, who is mm -hmm. a mime, but also a brilliant close-up magician. So when you get him off stage, he can do ambitious card for days. I, I mean, he can do all kinds of great magic. Very good sleight of hand artist. And we were filming a video um, that he wanted to, to distribute. And one of the things that I asked him as the host of the video was, you know, what's the, you've got such a unique way of dealing with the audience. What's the secret? And Arsene said, you know, the real secret is to love them. Um, I, I try to love my audience. I try to understand how fortunate I am to have an audience. And I try to really honor that relationship, which, you know, was a mind blowing kind of thing. And, you know, you, I think in one of the books, we talk about Howard Thurston, the famous uh, vaudeville magician jumping up and down saying I love my audience I love my audience I love my audience before he went on stage yep yep I think uh, there's even a comment that Eli makes in one of the books about uh, he gets a sense from some performers that they say just the opposite before they yeah. walk out on stage 
Yeah, and uh, Eugene Berger, before he really became, uh, you know, Eugene Berger as we know him now, had written um, a pamphlet that he sold at lectures. And one of the things he talked about early, early, early on in his work was making the participant the star of your show rather than the stooge of your show. Yep. And when I read that, I, I didn't, I was too young to comprehend what he was trying to teach me. But in hindsight, of course, that's what Suzanne is talking about is, yep. is having that mindset that these people are not just props to be used and abused and sent back to their seats as schmucks. Uh, there's a better way of doing it, a different way of doing it that honors that. And and that's why, you know, I, I, I Eugene used to say the reason the audience starts looking at their feet when the magician says, I need a volunteer from the audience is because they've all seen people pulled up on stage by magicians and made to look like complete schlemiels. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so it, I, this this concept needs to be revisited again and again and again and again and again by anybody who does any kind of performing. Yep. Yeah. No. Yeah. And uh, I also think we might want to consider renaming the podcast behind the page, the Eugene Berger podcast, because uh, it's the honorary. Uh, it is. He comes up. Uh, if we did a drinking game with this podcast, I'm afraid we'd have people passed out all across the world. Maybe not Switzerland, but elsewhere. Well, we even got to the next chapter, I would guess, because we yes. talk about him all the time. And Which, uh, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm, as you know, indebted to him for life and a fan forever. Yes. Well, and you mentioned chapter. We, we are here to ostensibly listen to chapter 18 of the Bullet Catch. So I will just briefly remind folks uh, who may have forgotten, I certainly have, what happened in chapter 17. That's when he met Sylvia Washburn at her house. We had a nice scene with the mystics at Adrian's bar. The next morning, Eli got a call from Trish, took her downtown. There was a chat with Deirdre. He figured out what the talking mule reference was. And uh, there was another chat with Deirdre, and that brings us right into chapter 18. The Bullet Catch, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 18. Sylvia Washburn is dead? I repeated my question, even though Deirdre had already answered it once. Yes, last night. One of her maids found her this morning. For a quick moment, I thought how Carmelita had wisely vacated that job at just the right time. How? Where? When? I stopped just short of asking why and who, thinking that was not the path to go down at this moment. We were seated in a small conference room, Trish and I on one side of the table, Deirdre on the other. Homicide detective Fred Hutton leaned against the wall in his standard glowering golem pose. She drowned in her jacuzzi tub, Deirdre explained. There are no signs of struggle in the bathroom, so we're proceeding under the assumption the death was from natural causes. She turned to Trish. Mrs. LaSalle, were you acquainted with Mrs. Washburn? Only slightly, Trish said quietly. We'd been to their house once or twice. We weren't close. Deirdre made a note of this and then turned to me. And you never met her, right? She asked in passing as she returned to her note-taking. 
When I didn't answer immediately, she looked up at me. Actually, I said slowly, I met her once, at her house, last night. This got the attention of homicide detective Fred Hutton. He crossed the room and pushed the door closed with his hand. He then sat next to Deirdre at the table and produced his own notepad from his suit coat pocket. Let's start at the beginning, he said as he flipped open the notebook and clicked his pen. At the very beginning. As interrogations go, I suppose it could have been worse. They quickly decided they needed to separate us, putting Trish in one room and me in another. While she cooled her heels, I related to Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton everything that had happened so far. My encounters with Dylan LaSalle at the reunion, my mysterious meeting with Mr. Lime at a house on Lake of the Isles, my phone call with Howard Washburn and subsequent discovery of his body, Deirdre took down the address of Mr. Lime's mansion and then continued with the questioning. I talked about my conversation with Roger Edison and recounted my misadventure with the Washburn's garage before getting to the heart of the matter. And why did you go out to her home? Deirdre asked. Like I said before, I was just trying to figure out the relationship between Howard Washburn and Dylan LaSalle. Homicide detective Fred Hutton grunted on his side of the table, but a look from Deirdre quickly silenced him. Why is that your concern? Deirdre continued unabated. I was curious, I said, trying to keep any defensiveness out of my voice. Did Mrs. LaSalle ask you to make these inquiries? No, I said. I was looking into this matter on my own. And can we make the assumption Mrs. LaSalle is saying the same thing? to Detective Wright in the room across the hall? I can't see any reason why she wouldn't. Deirdre gave me a long look. But you've had no relationship with Mrs. LaSalle since high school, is that correct? It is, and we really didn't have much of a relationship back then. You were acquaintances. That would be putting it strongly. And you reconnected at the reunion? We did. She rolled her eyes and then reached over and shut off the recording device that had been rolling since this official interview had begun. Oh, Eli, what are you doing? I looked around the room. Is that an official question? Did you have a crush on this woman in high school? I'm not sure I should answer that. Oh, I see. The questions about the murders and the muggings and the suicides and the drownings. You'll answer those questions but you want to take the fifth on whether or not you had a crush on her? I'm not sure it's germane, I finally said. Why don't you let us decide what is and is not germane, she said. And then she reached over and started the recorder again. And where were you last evening between the hours of 8 and 11? I was at Adrian's with Uncle Harry listening to Mac the Knife. This was too much for homicide detective Fred Hutton. Nonsense! That song is only three minutes long. Not the way Harry plays it. That was going to be my answer, but Deirdre had beaten me to it. This resulted in a long look between the couple, the cold silence speaking volumes. Deirdre closed her notebook. Finally, do you know of anyone who would have had any reason to harm Mrs. Washburn? 
I considered mentioning the household staff, but decided if any of them had committed the crime, they deserved to get away with it. No, I don't. Homicide detective Fred Hutton reluctantly closed his notebook, but he was clearly not happy about it. After we'd made it through our respective interrogations, neither one of us was in the mood for lunch, so Trish suggested she'd take a rain check, and I began to drive her home. Once we made it out of downtown, I took a right on Franklin Avenue, figuring going around the lakes might conclude the events of the morning on a more pleasant note. That Detective Wright really doesn't like me, Trish said, as we crested the hill and Lake of the Isles came into view. Yes, well... You two are BFFs compared to how homicide detective Fred Hutton feels about me, I said. He didn't like my alibi at all. Why not? You were in a bar with your uncle the whole evening. I think he didn't believe Mac the Knife can or should be played that often. Well, at least you have an alibi, she said. God, I can't believe we're sitting here talking about alibis. How did I get into this mess? I had an answer on the tip of my tongue, but wisely kept it there. It ultimately didn't matter, because a moment later, she spit out the word I was thinking. Dylan, she said, as harshly as I'd ever heard her say anything. That's how I got into this mess. Now, because of him, everyone thinks I'm a murderer, and they're going to put me in jail, and I'll never be heard from again. I'll come visit, I said. For some reason, that made her laugh, and then it made me laugh as well. Actually, at this point, you are unlikely to be arrested, let alone do any time, I said. Why do you think that? Because, like homicide detective Fred Hutton, I lived with that assistant DA, and I know how she works. She's not going to push to have you arrested. Well, that's nice, Trish said. At least someone out there thinks I'm innocent. I shook my head. Disabuse yourself of that notion right now. It's not that she thinks you're innocent. It's just that she knows she can't prove you're guilty, at least not in court. And I know that woman. She won't push for an arrest unless she is sure she can get a conviction. She never starts an argument unless she knows ahead of time she's going to win it. That must make things fun at home, Trish said with a trace of a smile. That's the central tension in their relationship, I said, turning off of Lake of the Isles Parkway, heading the car toward Lake Calhoun. He knows who the bad guys are, but she won't prosecute unless she knows she can win. They really should consider getting into some therapy for that. But I will say this, I continued. If someone is trying to frame you in these killings, they're doing a real half-assed job of it. I think the police and the DA's office are only interested in you because they have no one else to look at. Once they find another shiny object, they'll be done with you and start going after someone else. Well, given some of the people Dylan hung around with, I would think they have no shortage of other shiny objects. Her mention of the people Dylan hung around with got me to thinking about Mr. Lime and his stocky, well-muscled assistant. They'd already demonstrated a keen interest and ability in tailing me. Had they followed me out to Sylvia Washburn's house and then patiently waited until the party broke up to announce themselves? I suddenly had an image of Harpo standing stock still as he held Sylvia's head under the foaming water in the jacuzzi while Mr. Lime stood silently by, spreading hand cream on his bony fingertips. 
Our arrival at Trisha's high-rise condo knocked that image out of my head, at least for the time being. Are you sure I can't invite you up for lunch? She asked as she swung open the passenger door. I turned my head and craned my neck, looking up at the building, imagining which floor in that too-tall building was the 29th. I'll take a rain check, I said. Besides, I have a busy afternoon. Oh, do you have a gig? I shook my head. No, I gotta figure out how to shoot a guy without killing him. I spent the rest of that afternoon and most of the evening squirreled away in my apartment, doing research on other methods for doing the bullet catch. Normally, I would have simply asked Harry and he would have given me a handful of feasible options right off the top of his head. But knowing his dislike of the bullet catch, I felt I was better off flying under the radar on this one, which meant cracking open the books and doing actual research. I have a modest library of magic books and was able to sneak several out of the shop downstairs without Harry getting suspicious. But I knew the true mother load of books would be found in my uncle's bookcases in his apartment, and there was no chance I could garner access to any of those volumes without alerting him to my mission. So I used the resources at hand and some quick forays onto the Internet working to assemble a suitable method that would look good on camera and keep Jake from being injured, or worse. I quickly discovered the downside to researching the bullet catch. With each method I found came stories of the many magicians who have died attempting the stunt. And these weren't just stories of amateur magicians who had gotten in over their heads. The majority of fatalities were magicians who had performed the trick for years, seemingly using well-practiced methods they considered to be foolproof. After I'd read over a dozen such stories, I set aside all the research, and using all the examples of what hadn't worked, I began to structure my own method I felt would work safely on camera in one long, continuous shot. I took occasional breaks to clear my head. I spent some time emptying out my email inbox, which had become stuffed with spam that had cleverly weaseled past my filter, as well as legitimate emails I simply hadn't gotten around to reading. Several emails pertained to the high school reunion. One was from the organizing committee, asking me to fill out a poorly worded questionnaire about the event and my thoughts on future reunions. There were also several emails from the photographer at the event, each offering a better deal on the pictures he'd taken than the last, suggesting he wasn't getting many takers on the photos he had captured. When I finished with that, I spent a long while staring out the window in my bedroom, which overlooks the roof of the movie theater next door. From this vantage point, I can peer down through the small window in the theater's projection booth, where I can see a corner of the room and a portion of the back wall, which holds, among other things, a small mirror. Over the years, I've spent many happy and restful hours trying to determine what movie they were showing by observing the way the lights and the shadows bounced around the small room. On this particular evening, I was unable to come to a conclusion about what movie it was, although I suspect it was in black and white. When that no longer held my attention, I picked up the yearbook I had pulled out in my effort to try to remember who Howard Washburn had been. Flipping through the pages, I came across my own senior photo, which looked just as geeky as I remembered. Beneath the photo, it listed my meager list of activities, 
including The Chess Club and The Talent Show. Like many others, I had chosen a favorite quote to conclude my entry. Mine was a favorite saying Harry had taught me, a maxim he felt all magicians should take to heart. Don't run if no one is chasing you. This foray down memory lane led me to search out the photos of Jake, and then Trish, and finally Dylan. Jake looked movie star handsome even at that young age, his head turned toward the camera from over his shoulder, an insolent grin on his face. Under his photo, it listed all his high school activities, with a healthy emphasis on the drama club. He followed this up with his favorite quote, Live fast, die young, and leave a good-looking corpse. Trisha's senior portrait was also stunning, her clear eyes challenging the camera, her hands folded neatly in front of her. Her list of activities was twice as long as Jake's, and included, in addition to her title as homecoming queen, a long list of all the charitable and service activities she had taken part in. Despite the lengthy list, the yearbook editors were still able to make room for a quote, in this instance attributed to Eleanor Roosevelt. The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams. Finally, I turned to the page that should have held the photo of Dylan LaSalle. His name was listed, but there was an empty space where his photo should have been. In the photo area were the words, No Photo Supplied. There were no activities listed under his name, and certainly no insightful quote. I paged through the book for a while and then went back to work on my assignment for the evening, finding a way to keep Jake's high school quote from coming true, at least on the film set tomorrow. It was well past midnight when I set my notes aside and crawled into bed. But sleep was elusive, and when it came, it included repeated images of Harpo, pushing Sylvia Washburn under the water, while Mr. Lime stood by, putting on gloves and smiling that toothy, cadaverous grin of his. It was not a restful night. So, the bullet catch. You know, I've said before, I'll say it again, when I started the series... Suzanne taught me how to do the ambitious card, and my goal was to learn and perform the title trick for every book from that point on, and then the second book became The Bullet Catch, and I said, all right, we're done. We're not going to do that. And so I consequently, I never learned uh, The Miser's Dream, The Floating Light Bulb, The Linking Rings. I could kind of do a magic square if you put a gun to my head, but why would you do that? Why would a person do that? But I remember Early on in the process of writing the first book, The Ambitious Card, and you and I were doing some corporate event or something, and we were chatting about it, and I said, I'm hesitant to make up any trick because I don't know if it's possible to do it. And you said, there's nothing you could make up that some magician somewhere would not be able to do. They'd figure out a way to do it. Mm -hmm. So I, I have always tried to know how each of the tricks is done in the books. If I don't know the specifics of it, I have a general idea of the method being used except for the bullet catch. I have no idea what Eli came up with for their version of the bullet catch, nor do I want to know. Sometimes you can just make stuff up, and that's exactly what we did there, and I'm sure Eli came up with a very good way of doing it. I just don't know what it is. No, it's fine. He's a smart uh, magician, that Eli, and he's got good resources. He doesn't have to know everything because he can look it up with Uncle Harry. Just like having Einstein right there. 
Exactly. All right. Our next episode is going to continue our theme of how to build a better magician with someone that we had the great fortune of meeting a couple years back at Sunday Night Magic, uh, a magician and author who uh, I was very excited to meet because I've enjoyed his somewhat critical take on the magic community. Uh, and that's uh, magician, uh, author and magic director John Lovick, who also goes by the name Handsome Jack. That's his character name. And it's hysterical. Male model. Handsome Jack doing magic. He's uh, it, it's really great. It, we're, we're, I'm thrilled to, to get to talk to him. He's a he's a charmer. He really is. And the, the lessons that he gives about how he developed the character of Handsome Jack and the act are, um, I believe he said that magicians should do exactly what he did and don't do anything that he did because it was sort of a convoluted way that he got there, but it was a very smart way. It was, as you'll hear, uh, he listened to the audience. And the more he listened to the audience, the more he changed the act. And by the end of, uh, I believe it was, again, we're coming up with a year, just like Suzanne became a professional year. Uh, within the course of a year, he created a Handsome Jack out of whole cloth and a pretty good act at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're lucky about that. And there's all kinds of uh, great stuff in the show notes, John always puts together so many wonderful things. Well, it's only because just... there's good stuff out there. In this yeah. case, because it's uh, Suzanne, we have some video of Suzanne in action. And I should say, I got to see Suzanne in action uh, at a wedding, actually before we recorded the interview. To see her working with lay people and just frying them was fantastic. Anyway, we've got videos of Suzanne in action, including uh, her award-winning performance on Penetelefoulis, and I believe there's also a video of her cups and balls. Let me just quickly make sure that's which in there. So there yeah, her cups and balls routine, which is so really, 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 really good. So check that out, and then uh, make sure you're subscribing so you don't miss John Lovick or the other big fun names. We have a lot of surprises that are going to wrap up season two. And then we're going to launch into season three, which will be uh, the same but different. Did you, um, by any chance, John, uh, tag Suzanne's YouTube channel in the show notes? I did. So you can see oh, all the stuff that she has posted you as say, well. If, you, if we didn't, you should find that because it's absolutely worth subscribing to her YouTube channel as well because she's terrific. And I will also say, as long as you're advertising these folks, if you are interested in magic lessons and it isn't, you know, you're not listening to this in 2050. Track down Tyler or track down Suzanne. The internet brings them right to you, and you'll learn a lot from either one of them. Uh, we're going to chat with David Williamson in a few weeks, and David also has gotten into online teaching. And can you imagine, I mean, learning from David Williamson or Tyler mm -hmm. Erickson or Suzanne the Magician in no. the comfort of your home? Yeah. What it, it, it would be uh, like learning in a, from some of the greats of bygone eras, the the yeah. Ross Bertrams, the, uh, uh, I don't know who goes high as uh, Di Vernon, but, uh, you know, I mean, to get a session with one of those people that you can do without even leaving your home now yeah. is such a gift. It's just That's amazing. It's yeah. just amazing. I had to drive all the way to Brooklyn Park oh my goodness. to see Suzanne and that. Back uh, a lunch. Yeah, well, we was at a coffee shop, so I was able to get like a bagel with a schmear on it. So it was all fine. It was all fine. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to this episode. We will be back in two weeks uh, with the one, the only, John Lovick. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs> 
This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham, produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thank you.